participate in our conference um, after our arguments this afternoon. I, I believe that um, they've already asked you to silence your cell phones. I'm not particularly sure if the emergency alert system is going to impact all devices, so I would suggest that even if you have something that is not an iPhone, like an Apple Watch or something else, that you might want to turn that off as, as well. Um, with that, I will call the first case. It is 22-50998, Wilson versus Midland County. Good afternoon, may it please the court. Jabba Tietzwashvili for appellant Irma Wilson, who's here with us today. Good. Ms. Wilson was prosecuted and convicted with Ralph Betty working her case on both the prosecutorial and judicial sides of the bench. But she only learned of that structural procedural due process violation after her sentence had happened to expire. So the district court held that she cannot litigate her federal due process claim in federal court. I'd like to proceed in two parts to explain why this court should reverse. First, the district court relied on Randall v. Johnson, but Randall is no longer good law. In Muhammad v. Close, the Supreme Court disavowed Randall's sole mode of analysis. So under this court's rules of precedent, Randall's not binding and this court has an obligation to do the right analysis. Second, this court has never done the right analysis. It's a straightforward text. Once in a while we do. Exactly, Your Honor, except it hasn't done the right analysis in this context. Under the Supreme Court's recent Tlefsky decision on which we submitted a 28J letter, the question is whether Section 2254, the federal habeas statute, supplants and is inconsistent with recognizing non-custodial plaintiffs' Section 1983 claims. That high burden is the defendants to carry. They have not and they cannot here for the simple reason that non-custodial plaintiffs' claims do not lie within the core of habeas corpus and are therefore unaffected by Section 2254. So I'd like to start by expanding on the first issue, which is the continued vitality of Randall. Randall said it was settled that Heck v. Humphrey bars non-custodial plaintiffs Section 1983 claims. But then Muhammad comes along and the Supreme Court says it's not settled. So Muhammad disavows Randall's sole mode of analysis. And under this court's rules of precedent, that means this court has the quote obligation to decide whether non-custodial Section 1983 plaintiffs are indeed heck barred. So I think this court's um, analysis in Bonvillian, which we cite in our briefs, is instructive on this point. Bonvillian explains that if an intervening Supreme Court precedent makes it, quote, doubtful that this court would conduct the same analysis as it did in Randall, then Randall is not binding. Well, here, after Muhammad, it's not only doubtful, it's certain that this court would not conduct the same analysis as it did in Randall. After Muhammad said that the issue is unsettled, no lower court can limit its analysis to saying that the issue is settled. But 
that's it, that was the full extent of Randall's analysis, so it doesn't bind this panel. Indeed, Muhammad did exactly what Randall said Spencer v. Kemna did not do. The Randall court said that it wasn't willing to cobble together concurring and dissenting opinions from Spencer to hold that the Supreme Court had unsettled what Randall said, Randall read as Heck's application to these circumstances. But then Muhammad comes along and the full court in Muhammad says that Heck actually never settled this issue. That upends Randall's mistaken reading of Heck. It upends Randall's mode of analysis in reaching the outcome that it reached. I have a few additional points on this, on this score, Your Honors. I'd like to point out first that the Tenth Circuit and Judge Easterbrook's well-reasoned opinion, dissenting opinion in Savory v. Canyon, agree with us that this is indeed the effect of Muhammad. First, if the Randall Court had actually done an independent analysis of the relationship between Section 2254 and 1983, as Judge King, you've noted that you noted that this court does do in other instances, and concluded that Section 2254 does indeed supplant Section 1983 in these circumstances, we acknowledge that this court could only overturn Randall on bunk. But that's not what Randall did. Randall didn't do that independent analysis. All it did was say that Heck settled this issue. Muhammad comes along and says, Heck did no such thing. Again, that is a disavowal of Randall's mode of analysis, which is all that's required for Randall to no longer be deemed binding law. Second, let's say that Muhammad had said the court had no occasion to revisit Heck's application to these circumstances. We acknowledge that if that's the word Muhammad used, Muhammad would not have the effect that we say it has. But the word Muhammad used was that we have no occasion to settle the issue in these circumstances. And so again, it's that word that upsets Randall's sole mode of analysis, which was to say that this was settled, as the Tenth Circuit and Judge Easterbrook have explained. Third, after Muhammad interred Randall's mistaken reading of Heck, no decision of this court has revived it. Now, to be sure, there are published decisions from this court that recite Randall's rule. But I'd like to borrow from the wording of this court's decision in Brune, which says that because none of those decisions analyzed whether Muhammad abrogated Randall's rule, this court is not bound by those decisions wrote recitation of Randall's rule. The simple import of these rules, Your Honors, is that it's not just the outcome that matters under these court's rules of precedent. It's how you get there. The Randall panel thought this court couldn't reach the Tlefsky question, you know, the interplay between 2254 and 1983. Muhammad makes clear that that was a mistake. I think there's one more example that, that would be helpful and kind of one more concrete example that would be helpful in wrapping our heads around this precedent question before I turn to the, to the substance of that textual inquiry. And I'd like to point to the Hines decision that we cite in our brief. Um, Hines, which relies on uh, the, the, this court's prior decision in Visalign, explains that this court had said a particular issue was not subject to the First Amendment. The Supreme Court came along and said that the opposite is true, 
But the Supreme Court did not dictate what the ultimate outcome would be under that First Amendment analysis. Now, similarly here, this court said, Heck settled the issue we're discussing. The Supreme Court in Muhammad comes along and says, again, the opposite is true. It's not settled. But again, it doesn't dictate what the outcome would be under the correct analysis. So in both instances, uh, implementing the Supreme Court's clarification of the law and of the, of the scope of its, of its precedent wasn't outcome determinative, but it did change the way you get to the outcome. And again, under this court's rules of precedent, which look at the mode of analysis, that's what matters. And that's the reason that in these circumstances, Randall is no longer binding. So that, uh, the resolution of that first question of, about Randall's continued vitality doesn't mean we win, but it does mean this court must now ask the relevant question for the very first time. And that's a, like I said, it's a straightforward textual inquiry under Tlefsky, the question is whether Section 2254 supplants and is inconsistent with recognizing non-custodial plaintiffs' Section 1983 claims. The answer is no. Section 2254 does not supplant Section 1983 in these circumstances. To start, Tlefsky reminds us that Section 1983 is presumptively applicable and that it's the defendant's burden to show that it's not in the particular circumstance. Here, the defendants have pointed to nothing in Section 2254 or the surrounding habeas procedures that even addresses non-custodial individuals. What impact does Article 11072 of the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure have on that issue? I believe Your Honor is referring to the, the Texas State Habeas Statute, is that right? Sure, Your Honor. So that is really the defendant's only response to the, you know, the, the fact that Section 2254 does not govern non-custodial plaintiffs. They say that uh, Ms. Wilson must succeed on that state habeas claim before she can sue on Section 1983, right? Um, but this court actually rejected exactly that argument in the recent Hicks decision on which we submitted a 28-J letter. Hicks rejected the notion that heck bars any Section 1983 claim that is also cognizable in habeas at the time it accrues. Hicks That's the distinguishable, right? Because the only thing that I, I think the only issue in Hicks was whether or not I think he was only challenging his release. He wasn't challenging the sentencing or the underlying conviction, as I think is going on in this case. Sure, Your Honor, I, I understand that, but I think that the solely on over detention and solely on the release issue. No, I understand. I understand that the circumstances were different, but the argument that this court rejected in Hicks is the same one that they're making here. The argument that they're making is that um, because Ms. Wilson's claim happens to be cognizable in state habeas, that she's barred from bringing it under Section 1983. So Hicks did reject that argument. I want to explain. I want to go on to now explain why that rejection, the rejection of that argument makes sense in these circumstances as well. First of all, it's contrary to settled law, which says that you cannot impose an exhaustion requirement on Section 1983, which is, is exactly what that would amount to. Heck itself reiterated that you can't do that. Second, the fact that a state statute happens to extend state habeas beyond habeas's core 
to encompass people who are not in custody for purposes of federal law, that doesn't change the scope of federal law. It doesn't change the meaning of federal law. And it doesn't affect the textual interplay between Section 2254 and Section 1983. And that's the question that matters. So the Supreme Court actually made this clear recently um, in Nance v. Ward. It made clear that Section 2254 only concerns itself with the core of habeas corpus, and that core is limited to people in custody for purposes of federal law. Um, Nance v. Ward defines the core of habeas corpus as having essentially two elements. It says first that it applies to people who are in custody for purposes of federal law and people who are um, challenging the validity of a conviction or sentence. If either one of those elements is missing, then you're not in the core of habeas corpus. Well, the first element is missing here. We don't have a person who is in custody for purposes of federal law. Section 2254 simply doesn't reach such people. And so again, if you do that textual, textual analysis that Tlefsky compels, you see that 2254 is concerned with one set of people, Section 1983 is concerned with a different set of people. It, cannot, it simply cannot be that in those circumstances, Section 2254 supplants and is inconsistent with recognizing the unambiguously conferred Section 1983 remedy here. Now, I do want to point out that there are circumstances where even a non-custodial plaintiff might be required to show favorable termination via state habeas or some other method before suing under 1983. That's a favorable termination is an element of the claim that they bring. But that's an inquiry that's separate and apart from the interplay between 2254 and 1983. And I think an example will help illustrate this too. Thompson v. Clark is a recent Supreme Court decision. That case arose out of the Second Circuit, which as we explained in the briefing, does not apply heck to non-custodial plaintiffs. The plaintiff in that case was non-custodial, and yet the whole case, including in the Second Circuit, was about favorable termination. The reason is because favorable, ter favorable termination was an element of the claim that the plaintiff was bringing, and it was a malicious prosecution claim, because it, because it was a malicious prosecution claim that had that element. Now here, by contrast, we explain at length in our reply brief why favorable termination is not an element of Ms. Wilson's structural procedural due process claim. In short, it doesn't make sense to superimpose any of malicious prosecution's elements on a claim that's based on the structure of the proceeding itself rather than an evidentiary defect that's specific to a particular criminal defendant. To say it maybe really simply is that it's to say that um, the malicious prosecution torts elements don't map onto a claim like ours that's unconcerned with questions of guilt or innocence, a structural claim like this one. So Ms. Wilson's claim has neither of the potential bases for imposing a favorable termination requirement. First, she's not in custody for purposes of federal law, and she wasn't when she discovered this violation. So there's no collision with Section 2254, and there never was. Second, her claim does not have a favorable termination element in and of itself. With neither of those conditions present, she has a Section 1983 claim. I just want to make one final point, Your Honors, and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have as well. If the panel happens to disagree with us about Muhammad's effect on Randall, 
and feels that it is bound and that it continues to be bound by Randall, we'd respectfully ask that you urge the full court to take this issue up on bond. <coughs> Obviously, for the reasons I've said, we think that this, this court has the authority and indeed the obligation to reach the merits here. But if you disagree, this court should take it up on bond because Randall is a two-page per curiam decision in a pro se case. It limits, itself, it limits itself to both an analysis and a holding that the Supreme Court and most circuits have seriously called into question. It doesn't ask any of the relevant questions, the ones required under Tlefsky to decide the interplay between 2254 and 1983, which other courts have done post-Muhammad. And it reaches a result that keeps plaintiffs like Ms. Wilson from vindicating their constitutional rights via their unambiguously conferred Section 1983 remedies. It does all of that in disagreement with six Supreme Court justices, a majority of circuits, and the well-reasoned opinion, the well-reasoned dissenting dis, uh, opinion of Judge Easterbrook in the Savory v. Cannon decision from the Seventh Circuit. Now, of course, it is this court's prerogative to, to disagree with those justices and those judges on the merits, but if it does so, the court should at least say why. It's never done that because Randall limited itself to this misreading of heck. If your owners have any questions, I'm, I'm happy to field them. Thank you. Thank you very much. May it please the court, Lane Rouse on behalf of the appellees Midland County, Ralph Petty along with co-counsel Steve Kaiser on behalf of Al Shorey. I'll be making the argument for all the appellees uh, and that's all been uh, put on me. The court should affirm the lower court's ruling. Randall is good law contrary to the appellant's argument and the court has been doing the correct analysis for the last 20 years based on a reading of Heck v. Humphrey. Randall continues to be binding precedent despite the arguments of Pellant in its interpretation of a footnote contained in the procurium opinion of Bahal and Close. In fact, as recent as August 9 of 2023, this court in a published opinion cited to and relied upon Randall. It's an opinion Collins versus Dallas Leadership Found Foundation where it cited Rendell in support of the standard that has been applied and continuously applied in the circuit for the last 20 years. In that, in, in that case, uh, the court, while it did not make any mention of, of the Muhammad opinion in that decision, the court has previously addressed the Muhammad footnote issue in at least two prior unpublished opinions, Black v. Hathaway and Thomas v. Louisiana, which were both cited to in our brief. In an, in an unpublished opinion in August of August 25th, 2023, this court also cited Rendell in a in a separate in a separate decision, continuing to rely upon the authority of, of Rendell. The Fifth Circuit for the last 20 years has continuously upheld it. It has had opportunities to revisit it, whether based on arguments of Muhammad or or other arguments raised but it has continued to apply the Heck v. Humphrey favorable termination requirement regardless of whether individuals are incarcerated or not. Even in the opinion uh, that the appellants offered to the court, Hicks v. LeBlanc, which uh, Judge 
Douglas recently noted a, a distinguishing issue in that, in that case compared to, to this one. Uh, it illustrates how what is going on in the Heck v. Humphrey and how the Fifth Circuit has continuously applied it is has been consistent. It's not the status of the incarceration that matters whether the favorable termination requirement is mandated, at least under Heck. What matters is the type of claims, whether the claims that what Wilson is doing is seeking to challenge or invalidate an underlying judgment of conviction or a sentence. In the Hicks v. LeBlanc uh, case, there the the underlying prisoners were being uh, unlawfully detained past the time of their sentence, but they were they were still incarcerated. They remained incarcerated, and therefore habeas could potentially still be available to provide the relief that they were seeking. But what the court said in, in that case, because the, those uh, prisoners in their petition for relief filed under Section 1983 were not seeking to overturn a judgment, conviction, or a sentence. In fact, they were seeking to uphold the sentence as they had completed that, that, that sentence. Are those the New Orleans cases? Those are New Orleans cases. Yes, Your Honor. And that was actually something that the Hicks opinion noted, that that was an issue in the Louisiana prison system of uh, uh, prisoners being held past their, past their sentence. Uh, but what the issue shows is the core of habeas or the domain of habeas, it's not necessarily dictated, di dictated by how the habeas statute in its current form may have been structured. The core of habeas, at least with respect to Heck's favorable termination requirement, concerns the idea of parallel litigation, a civil claim brought alongside a criminal ju judgment where that civil claim is then used to attack, collaterally attack, or undermine the validity of the criminal uh, what the courts emphasize in that case is the civil world should stay away from the criminal world. There's a separate system in place because there are separate policy considerations that are involved when we go about collaterally attacking an underlying criminal judgment. That was the opinion of Heck that has been supported over and over in opinions written by this circuit and in the Supreme Court. But what, what would have been her, the correct remedy? for her to seek? The correct remedy for her to seek would have been uh, obviously an immediate uh, appeal, which which she did. Uh, she did not appeal it any further than the uh, Court of Appeals level. There's one more level that she could have done. I suppose she could have appealed ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then on the habeas side, there, within the way the Texas statute is written, uh, there is an available habeas, habeas remedy that she could have uh, that she could have sought at, after, at the time, uh, after her, her, after her con conviction. Uh, that specifically applies to those that are under community's supervision. So it's not that there was no remedy available, but I think the point is, even if there's not, that is a realm that is dictated by federalism concerns, policy concerns that are addressed under the habeas statute in its in its construction. If there's an issue with the with, with the remedy, then under Heck v. Humphrey and the decision that that's made there, the decisions, uh, the the issues need to be addressed within the habeas statute. Uh, the Muhammad uh, comment talking about settling a, a dispute or uh, a settle the dissenting opinions from, from Heck and the concurring opinion in the Spencer decision 
the arguments that are, are made there are really in response to a shrinking, at least, of how the federal habeas statute was created. Uh, looking at the history of habeas and how it had expanded to include the great, well, what was referred to as the great writ, uh, which resulted in a, a number of cases flooding into the court system. And then subsequently, uh, the court began to uh, create different rules to strike back and to limit the, those number of cases. Eventually, Congress stepped in and further limited uh, the, the relief with with the Anti-Terrorism Act. And what, what, what those did is it, it restricted the potential access to habeas. And the dissenting opinion in Heck and the concurring opinions in, in Spencer along with the dissenting opinions seem to be addressing not a, they, they seem to be addressing the shrinkings of, of access to the habeas corpus for relief. And that seems to, to be the issue. But that doesn't mean that 1983 then comes in as a stopgap to help fill in areas where 1983 shouldn't belong, at least according to Heck v. Humphrey. In the Supreme Court decision, McDonough versus Smith of 2019, uh, the Supreme Court discussed how Heck's concern was parallel lit litigation, civil claims running along criminal actions where the civil claims sought to undermine or undercut those criminal actions, and Heck sought to resolve it with the favorable termination requirement. Uh, with the language that's used there, it's that civil tort should not apply to claims that are within the domain of habeas corpus. The, uh, again, the issue is, I think, where appellants and appellees would, uh, strongly, would strongly disagree is what is this core idea? Is the core idea limited to those that are incarcerated, or is the core idea what Heck focused on and what the Fifth Circuit in its decision at Randall has applied, and that is the parallel running of multiple claims and the collateral attacking of state court criminal judgments. This is also not a case, well, actually, let, let me back, back up and discuss the Muhammad analysis just just briefly, again, the Muhammad case, so ultimately the, the, the decision was Muhammad. Uh, Heck did not apply in, in the Muhammad opinion because the, uh, the underlying claim did not seek to challenge or invalidate the underlying uh, conviction or, or the sentence. So the ultimate analysis in Muhammad was Heck did not apply in that case, and that led to the footnote which where the where the court was noticing this was not the occasion where Heck did not, not apply to, a, I'll use the word, address the dissenting opinion and the concurring opinion in Spencer, which are which vocalize the arguments that appellants are offering to the court today. It's ironic then that taking that footnote, that that footnote where the court is specifically stating we're not going to address it, that now somehow abrogates or challenges Randell decision. Again, it's, this is not an argument that the Fifth Circuit has ever adopted, and Muhammad was a 2004 opinion, so we're almost 20 years into, this, into the footnote, and not yet has one panel within the Fifth Circuit recognized that this was the effect of that footnote. But based on the argument, in using the word settle, what 
appellants argue is that when the Fifth Circuit in Randell was reading Heck and called Heck's conclusion of avoiding this parallel lit litigation world, that the conclusion of Heck unambiguously uh, results in a uh, conclusion that Heck, the Heck favorable termination requirement, it applies regardless of whether an individual is incarcerated or, or not. Um, that's a reading of, of Heck. That's not necessarily a reading of the dissenting opinion or the Spencer opinion. Even so, Randell did squarely address whether it would adopt the Spencer arguments and along with the Heck, along with the Heck dissent, noticing that, that an apparent majority of, of the court may have adopted a different rationale, but Randall specifically decided not to adopt that analysis. This is also not a case on which in Apelli's view, it would be proper to consider crafting a new exception or attempting to, to change law. Well, if we, if we decided to do that, the impact in terms of just volume would be significant, wouldn't it? It, it, it most likely would, Your Honor, because what it would do is almost create a third, a third access of habeas. You would have individuals that as soon as their incarcerated status is over, all of a sudden, they would potentially have a right uh, to assert a 1983 claim. The idea of the Heck v. Humphrey is that once they claim, uh, without the favorable termination uh, requirement, that claim does not e exist. For, so for limitations purposes, it's not running because it, cease, it does not exist until it is shown that that conviction is, is overturned. But if we change the analysis to base it on incarceration, once the person in custody is, is released, then it would have free access to potentially challenge their conviction. The question, the root question, is if you're going to do something with that kind of a ramification, sequela, um, the question is whose, whose judgment, who should make that judgment, right? I mean, it has potential enormous consequences in terms of the way people are treated in the system. And that's why they're here today. Um, but it isn't just a matter of the appellant here. It's a potentially um, far-reaching consequences in terms of volume of litigation. And the question is, who, who is supposed to make that decision? We're talking about one person here, uh, an important person, somebody we need to pay attention to. Yes, Your Honor. But who is it that when you think about the, the consequences of the decision, who is it that ought to be making that decision? The unintended consequences, if the court asking you, the unintended consequences of a ruling in favor of this one individual and then the impact on the yes. societal system as a whole. Yeah, that's the question. Ultimately, with respect to, to this circuit, um, it would be an en banc panel, the entire circuit, considering the... Oh, that would be good. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, at least as this court uh, interpreted it, and Heck v. Humphrey came to the decision that we're going to keep the Section 1983 apart from the habeas, the habeas corpus. 
habeas corpus is the realm where Congress is expressing its policy decisions in terms of federalism concerns, in, in terms of when is it best to overturn and how should we go about challenging uh, state court judgments and sentences versus 1983, which is a general statute. Uh, generally, Where do the other circuits fall on that issue? Excuse me, Your Honor? Where do the other circuits fall on the custodial issue? Your opposing counsel mentioned that the Second Circuit treats it differently. The, the, there is a split in, in, in authority. Uh, the Fifth Circuit's not, not alone in its approach, but there are other circuits that have different approaches. And uh, that, that is very true. And in order to resolve that, it's ultimately would be up to the, the Supreme Court to decide what is... Has there been a floodgate issue in those other circuits that, that recognize um, a different rule for non-custodial? Um, I, I don't have any studies, Your, Your Honor, uh, that uh, compare uh, the amount of lit litigation coming in under Section 1983 as a, as a third habeas, is what I may have referred to it as it just a second ago. So I don't have any, anything that I can cite, Your Honor. If the court uh, would like some reference for some studies, I'd be more than happy to provide some supplemental briefing, but I do not have any. But at least as it would apply in this circuit to overturn Randall, I think does open up those questions, which involves a lot of other considerations and a lot of other rules in how are we going to potentially limit the cases so that someone, as soon as they're released, can't just turn around and, and challenge a and challenge a claim. Um, or if someone never is incarcerated, what prevents them as soon as they have a plea deal in place and they never had to go to incarceration, they never had to spend any time in prison from turning around and challenging it uh, under 1983. Uh, there's systems in place, at least what we have in place as of right, right now on how to handle it. But uh, again, the consideration, at least from Heck v. Humphrey, is where, where is it best to handle a challenge to underlying con an underlying conviction. And that's under the habeas statute and those policies. If there's an issue with how those statutes are, are, are drafted in uh, allowing people to collaterally attack or continue to challenge underlying state court convictions and sentences, then those should be addressed in those policies, but not in a general statute of section 1983 designed to address general grievances. I think that's consistent with the logic of heck we think that's consistent with the history of, of habeas and how it has expanded o over time uh, to, in, at one point, embrace a very large amount of, of claims and very freely allow access to challenge, and then shrinking o over time, whether by, uh, by the Supreme Court uh, in subsequent decisions or by Congress. We think this is consistent with how the Fifth Circuit has been ruling on these cases for some 20 years now. Uh, and this is, and it's consistent um, also with how the Supreme Court has interpreted Heck's decision, talking about the concern of the parallel, lit the parallel litigation. Again, and this is not a case uh, that even fat actually would uh, be a good one to support a, a reconstruction or rethinking in how to uh, how to redo this law. You have a individual that was convicted 20-some uh, years ago. Uh, it was tried to a jury. It was taken up on, on appeal. The one error that was noted uh, up on, on appeal uh, was actually waived by Pellant's counsel. Um, the, there's, an, it's, there's an attempt at analogizing this case to a structural due process 
uh, issue that was found in a separate case by the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas. But when we look at the pleadings in this case, they're factually dissimilar from the case that appellants attempt to analogize themselves to to prove or to show a alleged structural due process claim. This is this is not a, a good claim to try to reinvent or rethink what is the best way uh, to handle these issues. I think the point has, has been made clear that Randall is still good law. The court has been doing the right analysis in its reading of, of Heck, and that the Randall decision and the court's continued application of it is faithful to the tenets of, of Heck to avoid the parallel litigation and, as Judge King noted, potentially opening the floodgates of additional litigation. I always, I always wince when someone uses the word floodgates, but, um, uh, but, it, but you have individual cases that come in here that have enormous ramifications in terms of the whole system. And were we to accept the argument that the appellant is making now, which would be a first time to accept it, uh, the implications of that are enormous. I think that is correct, Your Honor. And so with that, the appellees would urge the court affirm the district court's ruling. I appreciate your time, sir. Your Honors, I know my time is limited, but I have four points that I'd like to make. Um, I'd like to start with Judge King's uh, concern about floodgates. I think it's important to well, note here. That word. Well, I think that was my word, not Judge King's word. But, Let's, also, but it is a, it, this case, were we to accept your argument here, would have enormous rep, ramifications in terms of um, the way the law currently functions and the volume of litigants. Your Honor, this rule has been, the, the, the rule that we propose has been the rule in the majority of the country for over 20 years. In the Second Circuit, in fact, this has been the rule since before Muhammad even. And yet no, no, uh, no judge on the Second Circuit has ever, you know, clamored for the reconsideration of this because it hasn't led to a floodgates problem. And there's a few reasons for that, Your Honor. One reason is that the, the federal system has ways of kind of kicking out claims that don't belong in federal court under other kind of under like you know rules of estoppel maybe statute of limitations issues so i think there are a lot of reasons that neither the second circuit nor any of the other circuits in the majority are clamoring to for reconsideration of this this is the rule in most of the country so i think and i think one of the uh, an additional reason for that is because some of these claims your honor like i said in my opening they have a favorable termination element in and of themselves. So regardless of this interplay between 2254 and 1983, you might have to meet favorable termination anyway. And that's going to be hard in most cases. But in this case, it's a, because it's a structural due process claim, um, we don't have that problem. So this is kind of a, it, it's a rare bird in, in some ways. Um, and the, the other point I want to make, and it's related to this one, which is, in essence, Your Honors, they're kind of trying to take, they're, they're mischaracterizing the claim that we have here. They're trying to say that we're really attacking the evidence in Ms. Wilson's trial. We're not. We're, we're talking about a structural procedural due process claim and one that was concealed from Ms. Wilson until well after her trial and well after her sentence expired. So I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what this claim is and that why they shouldn't be allowed to take advantage of the fact 
fact that the claim that it's an issue here has been concealed from Ms. Wilson until recently. Um, I do have other points here if you want to hear them, but that is, I think that is my time. Sorry? Brief is good, so we appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate it, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you very much.